It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. And uh, if you can, do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Super helpful. And really, even more helpful than that is leaving a positive review. Apparently, it's part of their algorithms. The more reviews uh, that podcasts have, then the more likely they are to show up in like search results and such and recommendations. So uh, subscribe and uh, give it a positive review. I mean, I guess if I guess if you want to give it a negative review, that's fine, too. I mean, everybody is entitled to their opinions. Um, also want to thank the patrons of the program that help make the show possible, like Loretta and Stephen and David and Jim, Curtis, Sherry, Nick, Mark, and Eric. Thank you very much for becoming patrons of the program. You can as well. Just go to thepetecalendarshow.com, and the link is at the top up there. It's labeled exclusive content for patrons. That's where you go. And uh, you can also subscribe right there. So uh, we have some developments in the lawsuit brought by some bar owners against Governor Roy Cooper over his uh, stay home, safer home executive orders, or as I like to call them, the Shios, which Look, I got a feeling this pandemic is coming to a close here. I mean, knock on wood, but I got a feeling it's winding down because viruses tend to virus, you know, and seems like it's kind of burning out. And I'm kind of worried that all of these executive orders, these stay at home and safer at home executive orders, that they're all going to fall. And when they do, then, you know, my acronym doesn't really serve a purpose anymore. So I'm kind of like, fingers crossed. I know I feel like we're running out of time to make this a thing to make Shio happen, but I appreciate everybody who has been uh, helping. Now, you know who would like to help you get a mattress is the sleep consultants at Mattress Man. It's true. These folks go through extensive training for like six weeks. It's like a boot camp for them. And uh, they learn like all about how mattresses are made, all the different kinds of material, uh, but also how people sleep, what sleep positions are best for different kinds of mattresses and such. So they can help put you on the right mattress so you get a good night's sleep. And uh, you add years to your life. I mean, they're literally saving their your life. I mean, that's what they're doing, these sleep consultants. I mean, they don't like to brag about it or anything, but they are kind of saving your life, right? Because they're adding years because you're getting good night's sleeps each night, and then you uh, you you live longer. I mean, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to exaggerate it at all, but. I mean, they are they are kind of saving lives every day. Now, they also have the President's Day sale going on. It's been extended through the uh, end of the month, which means what? You can score a free box spring with the purchase of Biltmore mattresses. These are made by Restonic in Fayetteville, so North Carolina made. And they're the mattresses that are at the Biltmore Hotel and the Inn uh, on the grounds there at the estate. So you know they're luxurious, okay? And they're sold exclusively at Mattress Man. Go to mattressmanstores.com, check out the inventory, or go into any of their four locations in Asheville, Arden, or Hendersonville. They ship nationwide, they have local five-star delivery service, and they have a 120-day comfort guarantee. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Tell them you heard it here on the show, and buy local and sleep better. 
All right. Joining me now is Jessica Thompson. She's an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation. That is a nonprofit public interest law firm, and uh, they represent clients pro bono and defend constitutional principles and defend citizens from government overreach. The website is PacificLegal.org. Welcome back to the show, Jessica. How are you? I'm doing well, Pete. Thank you for having me. Certainly. So I think the last time we spoke, it was before Christmas, and uh, you had just filed a lawsuit representing uh, a couple that owns a bar. It's called Club 519 in Greenville, North Carolina. The Waldrons are their names. And uh, we you were just getting underway with this litigation. So um, you you finally had a court appearance, I think, right, a, a couple days ago, maybe? And uh, give us an update. Yeah, that's right. So we were assigned to a single judge. His name is Judge Gale. He usually sits over business court matters, but he's actually heard a lot of these COVID challenges. So it's great that we pulled a judge who is well versed in the COVID orders and everything that's been going on in North Carolina since the start of the emergency orders. And so your clients own this bar and they have been shut down right since the COVID executive orders were implemented by the governor. That's exactly right. So they shut down in March with the first initial orders uh, from Governor Cooper, which means they are coming up on almost a year of being closed. And so at this hearing last week, we were asking the court that during the the pendency of the litigation to allow us to open up uh, under the same health and safety precautions that are being instituted in restaurants and bars all across North Carolina. So this might be a point of confusion because people may see bars in their towns that are open and think, why are you suing if I see this bar is open? Why why would this other bar be closed? Absolutely. So just by way of backstory, in case people missed the last time that I was on with you. Um, so our client is called a private bar, but most people in North Carolina don't even know what a p- private bar is because they're not usually asking to see ABC permits whenever they come in to grab a beer. So Uh, There are different classes of ABC licenses and a restaurant might have a bar inside of it and they serve uh, they make 30 percent of their profits off of food. But there are lots of other bars uh, that operate and do not sell food, such as wineries, distilleries, breweries, even these uh, popular bottle shops and brew pubs up in the mountains. Uh, And then there are private bars that serve uh, beer, wine and liquor. Um, but do not serve food. And so the governor has allowed North Carolinians to drink uh, at bars across the state since June of last year. Um, But he kept private bars closed until October and then allowed private bars to open in October, but under extremely limited outdoor capacity uh, that wasn't the same as all the other bars across the state. And so we're suing and asking to be allowed to open under those same safety precautions keeping North Carolinians safe at other bars. And uh, yeah, we just want to be able to open at 50% capacity indoors and out. And uh, you finally get this first court appearance, and this was for what specifically? Yeah, so it was just asking the court to allow us to open uh, under those same health and safety precautions while the litigation continues until we can you know, decide whether Uh, the governor has actually violated my client's constitutional rights. So this is a temporary injunction. Is that what you're seeking to what prevent the executive order from being applied? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, And so what potential, I guess the judge could say, 
yes or no, right? Those are the options. He can say, yeah, we'll keep you guys open or no. Are, is there, are there other options available to him? Yeah, well, and so he uh, he explored a couple of different options that he has. Uh, so he can tailor uh, the preliminary injunction allowing us to open. And so uh, when the bowling centers uh, challenged the governor's orders uh, this summer, he specifically gave uh, safety precautions that the, the bowling centers had said we would follow. And he said, OK, you may open, but you have to follow those restrictions. And so he asked during this hearing, you know, would it be that if if the bar were to violate these safety precautions I put in my order, would it be that the ABC commission could could shut them down? And and I answered, yes, I, I think you could structure uh, an order in that manner. And so he really has a lot of uh, room creative, you know, and creativity, uh, creativity that he can apply here. Um, but I think it's important that no matter what way this comes out, I feel certain that uh, the people on the other side are going to plan an appeal. Um, and, and we certainly would appeal if uh, we do not get a favorable ruling, because like I mentioned at the beginning, they've been closed for a year now and, and they're just uh, at the brink of insolvency at yeah. this point. So the arguments that you're making, um, and there are a couple of them, you're attacking this in, uh, from a couple different angles. Um, one is an equal protection argument. Kind of go over that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and and I think this is a good one to discuss because this really uh, had the most attention at the hearing. Um, I think this is it's really what the case boils down to. Uh, and what's amazing is that the governor is singing the same tune that he was singing back in June of last year. He says that bars are dangerous because of the human gathering effect. And that's just what happens when alcohol is around. And not only that, but we're justified in reopening only some businesses. Uh, because we're taking this dimmer switch approach to reopening uh, the economy. And then the governor says, oh, in courts, uh, you should defer to us because these are difficult decisions that we're making during an emergency. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the so difficult the- decision clause of the Constitution, I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going to court and saying the Constitution also has a uh, protected individual liberty, you know, in Article One of the North Carolina State Constitution. And your honor, that's your job is to enforce uh, the state constitution. And we hope that you'll do so and and protect uh, my client's constitutional rights. So why is it important that the governor's argument, because we I mean, we have heard this dimmer switch analogy. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. months. Um, Do you do I guess are you are you not believing it? Is it? <laughs> uh, why is that important? Why is this uh, a weak point in their argument? Absolutely. So we have a couple of counter arguments. The first one would be this dimmer switch is stuck. Uh, it's been a year and my, my clients, the private bars, are still closed. Uh, so this is threatening to turn off the lights on Club 519 for good. Uh, that's the first problem. But the other problem is that his dimmer switch approach is where he's uh, sneaking in this economic favoritism. And he comes out and admits as much. Uh, He says that they've allowed breweries and wineries, the bars inside of those, to operate uh, because they contribute more to the state GDP than private bars do. These breweries and wineries also attract tourism. And this is when the governor has asked North Carolinians, 
uh, not to travel to visit family over the holidays. And he's also said that the state has invested resources to attract wineries and breweries to North Carolina. And so because the state hasn't invested resources in private bars like my clients, we don't need to open them up. And that economic favoritism is just uh, unconstitutional. And, you know, he says we go by the science and there's nothing about science in that. Yeah. Well, and you would think that the science would be the same in a brewery versus a private bar because they, for all intents and purposes, they're identical in operation. You nailed it. And I think that's what's so ironic about his argument that well, there's just this inevitable human gathering effect anytime alcohol's around. Well, the whole point of his executive orders is to change human behavior is the first thing. But even apart from that, uh, if alcohol has this inevitable gathering effect, we have found safety precautions that are allowing people to go to bars safely. And those safety precautions are in restaurants across the state. And they're also in place at wineries, distilleries, breweries, and tap rooms across the state. And so if it's safe there, it's safe in a private bar. And private bars just want that same opportunity to open up and serve their customers. I think um, I think I may have joked with you the last time asking, like, are you aware of any kind of, you know, negative past experience that the governor may have had at a <laughs> at a private bar or a gym for that matter? Like, I, because it seems like he's singling these types of establishments out for some reason. And I can't figure out why. And I've heard it suggested that, uh, you know, they don't donate money to uh, political campaigns, at, at least maybe not to the right ones. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true or not. Do you have any more clarity at this point um, as to why this dimmer switch is stuck just for this industry? Well, I'll, I'll say two things that <clears throat> that we could um point to. The first is that uh, after the phase two order came out, when it was unclear that breweries or wineries would be able to open, they have powerful lobbying groups in the state. And those industries did reach out to the governor. And then what do you know, there's a guidance document posted the next day that clarifies that breweries and wineries are allowed to open. Uh, And I don't believe in coincidences with that type of thing. Uh, So I do think lobbying power is very um, influential here. Another thing is that back in December, Governor Cooper appeared on CNN, and I'm sure he's appeared elsewhere and said, you know, we're we're tough on the pandemic. We've closed bars in our state. So by keeping this small class of bars closed, he's able to go out and look tough on the pandemic. But in reality, he's tough on small businesses because he's closing the bars that are owned by small business owners, not the wealthy uh, owners of wineries. And, you know, like you mentioned uh, before, so many people in North Carolina don't even know that there are still uh, this, you know, there's still this class of business that's been left behind by his executive orders. And so we're also hoping to raise awareness about this disparate treatment and discriminatory treatment uh, that the governor is continuing uh, almost a year into the state of emergency. All right. More with Jessica Thompson in a minute. First, if your home sale process is in a state of emergency itself, you need a new real estate agent. Call mine, Rowena Patton. And she's the only realtor I've ever endorsed ever in my 20 years uh, as a radio guy. I've never endorsed another real estate agent besides Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Uh, They will get your house sold quickly and for more money. It's what they do. Uh, She outsells 99% of the realtors in the entire state. And the phone number is 828 
That's 333-4483. The website is mountainhomehunt.com. And uh, tell her you heard it here on the program. And uh, she's got buyers lined up if you're looking to sell. And if you're looking to buy, uh, she has homes in all price points. You can't go wrong. Call Rowena Patton, 333-4483, and then start packing. I'm talking with Jessica Thompson. She is an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation. It's a nonprofit public interest law firm, and it is representing uh, Club 15. Uh, 519, I should say, Club 519 in Greenville, uh, owned by uh, uh, a couple named the Waldrons. Uh, Is it just the Waldrons, or have you gotten anybody else? uh, Because I know there was another lawsuit with a bunch of other bars, uh, and that got filed. Uh, Is it just the Waldrons? Are there other uh, litigants at this point that you're involved with or that you're aware of? You know, we are representing the Waldrons and Club 519, but there is another lawsuit uh, by private bar owners, and uh, they formed an association, and they're working to represent the uh, represent the rights of uh, private bar owners in the North Carolina General Assembly. And we're just really excited to see other North Carolinians fighting for their state constitutional rights too. So, have you seen the uh, the case counts that are declining in North Carolina, um, and uh, these are going down, and I'm wondering: Does do you think that this has that this could have any kind of an impact on the case? Well, I mean, obviously, everyone is excited to see declining numbers of COVID, uh, and so we're we're hopeful that that means you know we're turning a corner. Uh, it's just further evidence that private bars would uh, be able to open safely. But I will say that uh, one thing that's concerning, given how uh, the bowling case played out. Uh, so the bowling centers uh, won their preliminary injunction. Their appeal goes up to the North Carolina Supreme Court. And what do you know? Governor Cooper decides that it's safe with the precautions in place for bowling centers to open. The North Carolina Supreme Court declares that the case is moot because there's not a uh, conflict between the parties anymore. And so we are concerned that he may change his executive order to allow private bars to open um, in some limited capacity, uh, and that we won't have this uh, constitutional issue uh, decided once and for all. Um, because as we know, he's he's signaled that he could go back and forth uh, with his executive orders with the dimmer switch. He can turn it on and turn it off. Uh, and we think North Carolinians' constitutional rights deserve more consistency than that. Uh, so we would prefer a ruling from the court. Right, because now that I'm, I'm kind of thinking just from a strategic standpoint, why not? He's uh, he's set to because we're approaching the end of the month and the current executive order uh, set to expire, and so he could very well dial it all back down again and say, "Okay, you guys can now reopen." And uh, then what? Another two, three weeks, four weeks go by, and then he tells you guys to close again. Would you have to restart the entire process, or would you be able to? pick up where you are now? So that would be up to the courts. Uh, that's mm. a question that we would end up arguing uh, if, if he were to change his executive order. And uh, there is a doctrine uh, under mootness, whenever uh, the, the dispute goes away, you can argue, especially when you have a dispute with the government, that this is capable of rep- repetition, but evading review. And so uh, that doctrine is really to prevent uh, state actors from 
trying to get around the litigation and uh, the vindication of constitutional rights by doing those sorts of acts. And so we would absolutely pursue that here. Right, because he did it with the bowling alleys, as you mentioned. But I, I think he didn't. Uh, he did it also with the with the churches, if I recall correctly, where they were fixing to sue him as well over the the church uh, restrictions, and and then he opened those up. That's right. And then also with gyms, uh, right, we saw yeah. something similar with litigation there. So there is a trend. Um, but again, as a public interest law firm. Uh, you mentioned earlier, we represent our clients pro bono. So many clients, once they secure the victory, they don't want to continue to pay lawyers. And goodness, who d- who couldn't understand that? But, <laughs> right. uh, but we're here. Our business is to vindicate people's constitutional rights. Uh, and so we want to continue uh, fighting for North Carolinians' constitutional rights. So this gets to something that, that the governor has guarded very closely, which is his powers, his authority. It's actually playing out in the school reopening fight as well, where mm-hmm. uh, he says, uh, well, he actually hasn't said whether he's going to veto the school reopening bill. Uh, and he says as one of the reasons why he uh, doesn't want to sign the the bill into law is because it, it doesn't uh, give the state powers the flexibility to respond. And so I take that to be sort of in the same vein as these arguments he has been making uh, Uh, in your case, uh, as well as others. So I wonder if he does kind of step away, back away in order to preserve that authority. But uh, especially, I should say, because you're also questioning this Emergency Management Act powers that Mm -hmm. I think really this is the thing that has to be addressed because I don't think anybody contemplated an Emergency Management Act power being exerted a year down the road. That's exactly right. So we that did come up at the hearing. And, you know, imagine the next time there's a terrible flu season or heaven forbid someone says, you know, climate change is becoming a public health emergency. And so we need to do something about it. I'm declaring a state of emergency. There's just extremely broad powers that have been delegated to the governor in the Emergency Management Act. And even Judge Gale uh, raised this point uh, during the hearing to the governor's counsel. He said, you know, one of my options is to deny this preliminary injunction. We settled this part of the case. And if they challenge the EMA and the three judge panel in Raleigh convenes to hear this challenge of the EMA, all of the governor's orders will be at risk mm. under that uh, under that uh, analysis. And, and so it, it just it really felt like a warning shot uh, to the governor of, hey, Take keep in mind that your your uh, authority that you've been delegated is on on shaky constitutional ground. Uh, and he even mentioned a uh, case, a recent case, a covid case out of Michigan uh, that said Governor Governor Whitmer uh, was exercising powers that were delegated too broadly. Uh, so the governor or not the governor, the judge was aware of that case and cited it uh, to the governor's council. So. I, I think they need to be concerned about this broad delegation. We we believe it's unconstitutional and it would call into question their entire uh, executive order. And, and he would be without power to issue those executive orders until the General Assembly passed a replacement bill mm. uh, for the Emergency Management Act. So, yeah, it's it's definitely something a risk to consider. Yeah. Um, and so, well, yeah. And given the past history, like we just went through, uh, I, I think maybe he pursues the exact same course. I, I will say that about him. He is consistent. 
uh, on uh, on some of the responses here. Uh, so th- sure. so that might be the case. Now, is there any way for e- even if he were to bail on this, would would this one portion, the EMA, would that be able to go and be litigated even if he has uh, uh, changed the executive order? Or would that also all of it just goes away? Uh, That would be a question that we would brief likely and would have to argue with the governor about. I'm certain that they would take the position. Hey, no harm, no foul. They've been allowed to open back up again. Um, They have the relief that they're seeking. Uh, But as long as the executive orders are still in place and this state of emergency has still been declared, I believe that that emergency, the the challenge to the statute, the Emergency Management Act, uh, would still be valid, and we would still continue to press it as long as our clients uh, were willing to. Yeah, and uh, because I think it does need to be addressed, and and so far I have not seen the General Assembly even whisper about taking some action on this. Where I thought there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of conservatives, Republicans that were saying this needs to be addressed while you guys are are in session when you've come back for the long session. And maybe they do, and they just haven't said anything about it. But I haven't heard anybody even talking about it at this point. Um, they're, they're fighting on the school front first. I don't know. Um, right. uh, we'll we'll right. see. Um, there was one other thing. Oh, this quote that I saw, <laughs> this quote from the judge in the Carolina Journal article on this judge, James Gale asked an attorney representing Governor Cooper, quote, don't keep telling me bars in general. I'm asking you, can you tell me, can you isolate something about bars specifically? He says, I'm begging you to give me the evidence. Um, so can you give me some context about what exactly the judge is begging for in this? Like, what's he asking for? And have you ever, I mean, is this unusual for a judge to beg an attorney for evidence during one of these proceedings? Well, sometimes the government uh, doesn't think that they need to justify their actions. And sometimes a court thinks that they need to. And so, uh, yeah, this this happened. It's it's rare for a, for a judge to uh, to really push for this uh, sort of evidence. But, you know, I, I believe he was growing frustrated with the governor's counsel, to be honest with you. He uh, he was asking this was you know, we spoke earlier about private bars are just one type of bar that right. are uh, that exists in North Carolina. And so the governor's council kept saying, well, there are reports that bars are more dangerous. Well, that applies equally to the other bars in the state. And so the judge was saying, tell me something that keep that's a reason for keeping these private bar cl- bars closed while all of these other bars are able to open with health and safety precautions. Ah. And they just couldn't provide any evidence because they do not have any evidence uh, to make this distinction. The only evidence that they have uh, to distinguish private bars from all of the other bars that are open in the state is that they don't contribute as much to the GDP of the state. Uh, It goes right back to this economic favoritism. And the judge was not finding that to be a convincing argument. Now, what he may uh, find after he's read the papers and deliberated may be something different, but he uh, he was not very satisfied with the evidence that they were producing and, and the lack of distinction. Uh, I mean, they're keeping uh, small businesses closed for a year and they, they can't distinguish between the businesses that have been allowed to open and those that they're forcing closed. 
and the judge believes that the the governor needed to produce more evidence. Well, I mean, you're talking about an administration that cited in its executive order two almost two dozen studies justifying the mask mandate. And when you actually read the studies, none of them <laughs> justify a mask mandate. So I'm not sure that the evidence uh, or producing evidence is really uh, in their wheelhouse on some of this stuff. Um, and, and I understand, like, and we talked about this, I think, the last time that uh, when a pandemic arises like this, it's a new virus and everyone is trying to uh, uh, to respond, right? And you you want to give latitude as much as possible and assume everybody is doing it for the right reasons and they're trying to keep people safe, right? But people have to, leaders have to be able to adapt and adjust when new information comes in. I have never seen a study that strictly examines this cohort of private bars versus you know, breweries, wineries, uh, you know, Applebee's bars, uh, restaurants. Like, I've never seen this kind of dissection of that class to tell you that, oh, yeah, this one group of uh, alcohol-serving establishments, these are really the problem. I've never seen any kind of study like that. And it doesn't sound like the governor's lawyers had any kind of study for that. That's right. They don't. They yeah. don't. And and I would submit I'm a North Carolinian born and raised and and I've been in private bars and I've been in bars and restaurants and, and breweries and brew pubs. And and the reason that there will not be any evidence to that effect is because there is no difference. Again, most North Carolinians walking into a bar, they would not know if they are in a brew pub or if they are in a private bar or a bar attached to a brewery other than, you know, the, the restaurant sign out front. Um, they would not know what type of ABC permit that establishment carries. And so it's just I think it's almost impossible that there is a uh, covid difference uh, in these classes of ABC permittees. Right. You might say the science doesn't support it, but uh, I know this governor is all about the science, so I, I don't want to cast aspersions. Is there anything else that you want to add that you think is important or interesting to note on this before we let you go? Yeah, actually, what you just said uh, rem reminded me of a point uh, that came up at argument. You know, they say that they rely on the best public health and scientific data. But if that's true, there are 38 states and the District of Columbia that disagree with that evidence and have allowed bars to open and serve customers inside. Or they found the health and safety precautions that they can institute and keep bars safe. And we would suggest that those are the same health and safety precautions uh, in place at bars all across the state. And private bars deserve that same opportunity to open up with those. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate you uh, you doing this work, but I also appreciate you making time to talk with me. Jessica Thompson, the attorney for uh, the Waldrons. She is with the Pacific Legal Foundation. It is a nonprofit public interest law firm, and you can read uh, the uh, the court filing. Some of the documents are up at the website PacificLegal.org. Uh, Jessica, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Peter. It was my pleasure. Now, one of the things uh, we mentioned there is the Emergency Management Act. I'm going to get into a little bit more of the details on this. Also, there was a ruling on voter ID recently, uh, and uh, we'll go over some of the details uh, on that. First, let me tell you some details about general equipment rental. 
family owned and operated great folks uh you know they've been doing this for now three generations and uh they have all of the tools that you need for whatever project you're looking to get done whether you are a homeowner and it's just like you know laying some tile or something and you need a you need a tile saw but you're not going to go buy one because it's this is the only project you're ever going to do you're putting in a backsplash and that's it uh and you don't need a tile saw so just go rent one right uh if you are looking to buy yard equipment by the way for the upcoming spring season this is where you need to go and i'll see you there i'm going to be buying mine <laughs> when christy and i move into our house uh i got to resupply all of my yard equipment and uh, replace it and that means I'm going to be going to General Equipment Rental. They are the official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. And they're conveniently located in Weaverville at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. And you go in there. These guys know all of these tools. That's what it means when you're officially you know, licensed uh, for sales and service. You know the the equipment. You know the, the different changes that have occurred from year to year, model to model. So you know which ones are going to be right for what size property, what kind of job. And we're talking, you know, tillers and mowers, pressure washers, chainsaws, trimmers, hedge clippers. They've got gas-powered stuff, battery-powered stuff. So whatever your preference is, they're going to be able to help you out. Also, if you're commercial uh, great. If you are doing uh, you know, this for a living, you're a contractor and you need some equipment, heavy equipment, same place. They've got all of your heavy equipment needs as well. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. Uh, go to their website, generalrents.com. Take a look at what they have to offer, generalrents.com. And when you go in there, tell them Pete sent you. All right. General Equipment Rental, generalrents.com. Think outside your toolbox. So um, John Gouzet, who I've just recently learned, that's how he pronounces it. And I apologize for mispronouncing it for like apparently a decade. <laughs> but he he's with the John Locke Foundation. And um, he had a piece uh, uh, back in May talking about the Emergency Management Act. And he has updated it recently because now that the legislature is in session, uh they really need to they really need to clarify some stuff because this law obviously has a pretty big loophole in it that has allowed Governor Cooper to interpret it uh, as not having to go to the Council of State to get any kind of approval or concurrence. And I don't think that's the spirit or intent of the law. And so I suspect that the legislature has at least considered going back and firming this up. But if they haven't, they really need to, in my opinion. Of course, what do I know? I'm just a little old podcaster. But uh, John Guzet, he may actually be able to influence folks. He's at the John Locke Foundation. He says, I've been a critic of Governor Roy Cooper's lockdown orders from the very beginning. Uh, he's argued that the orders are unnecessary. They are divisive. They're counterproductive. And he says that the governor issued them without first obtaining the concurrence of the Council of State. And because he did not do so, the orders are all illegal. And the only unfortunately, there's only been one test of this order uh, and in a court of law. And that was when the lieutenant governor, former lieutenant governor Dan Forrest, filed a lawsuit over the summer, challenging the legality of the lockdown orders. Um, but then the lawsuit was uh, was dropped. And uh, regarding his decision to drop the case after he lost on like the very first round, Dan Forrest said, quote, if you all want your freedoms back, you'll have to make your voices heard in November. And the implication was, you know, if he becomes governor, then he would rescind the lockdown orders. Um, 
And uh, this was, you know, obviously a reason why he thought people should vote for him. Um, Cooper will continue to occupy the governor's mansion, though, because Dan Forrest did not win. Cooper did. And so uh, Guzay says he has made it very clear, the governor has, that he intends to go on issuing lockdown orders without Council of State concurrence, which raises a question for those of us who still object to these orders. What can we do about them now? One thing that someone could do is file another legal challenge. Despite the previous conclusion, Dan Forrest's complaint had a lot of merit. The issue was how to reconcile what seemed to be two inconsistent sections of this Emergency Management Act. One section gives the governor a broad range of extraordinary emergency powers, but it says he can only exercise those powers with the concurrence of the Council of State. And you'll recall, we've covered this repeatedly over the last year, that Cooper sent an email out to the Council of State members. And for I guess I should explain for folks who don't remember, the Council of State is comprised of all of the statewide elected offices. So uh, agriculture commissioner, attorney general, lieutenant governor, governor, treasurer, auditor, uh, superintendent for public instruction, uh, commissioner of labor, right? All of those positions, uh, there are 10 of them. And Republicans hold six of the 10 seats. Democrats have four. Uh, and uh, this is the Council of State. And usually they don't really do a lot of stuff. They they basically like handle land transactions and the like. Um, but in this case, <laughs> they should have been uh, consulted. And in fact, they were. Remember, Cooper, uh, when he was uh, first going to shut everything down, he sent an email out to the Council of State saying, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Just check it in with you guys for concurrence and Meanwhile, the, you've got Republicans that are like, I'm not so sure we want to go down this route. And meanwhile, Cooper goes off and does his press conference. And then he comes back and says, when asked about it like a week or so later, he says, well, I don't need the concurrence from the Council of State. Our interpretation is that we don't need it. Well, if you don't need it, why did you ask for it? I guess it's better to have it and not need it, right, than to than to not have it and need it. So uh, Dan Forrest sued. The case uh, was he was not given a temporary injunction by uh, th actually the very same judge that we were talking about that's that's hearing the lawsuit uh, brought by the bar owners. That same judge did not grant a temporary injunction for Dan Forrest's lawsuit, and then he dropped it. So one path here is for somebody to sue, uh, maybe a council of state member to sue to get clarification. But short of that, the legislature can't act here. Right. The legislature can act. Um, and this is what Guzay wrote back in. Uh, yeah. Back in May, he says the Emergency Management Act concurrence by the council uh, requires concurrence by the Council of State for a reason. Even in an emergency, we don't want the governor to wield unchecked, unlimited and near dictatorial powers. Moreover, and this is particularly relevant in the present circumstances, even in an emergency, we can't expect the public to accept extreme measures and make major sacrifices unless they feel sure that their concerns and their interests were taken into consideration when the decision to impose those measures was made. Because it's made up of 10 independently elected officials, the Council of State is by its very nature less partisan and more representative than the office of the governor, because that's just one person, right? And in a time of an emergency, uh, it is you know representative, nonpartisan decision-making, 
That's really what is needed to win the public's confidence. Do you think that uh, Cooper's decisions would have more buy-in if he was uh, joined by the Council of State? I suspect so. Um, So this idea to limit his powers should be attractive because, as Guzet's colleague John Trump writes at the uh, Carolina Journal, Cooper did not have any coattails, right? Republicans picked up four seats in the state house. They only lost one seat in the state Senate. So Cooper is, is, he is officially a lame duck uh, governor. And uh, the Republicans now can force this issue because, as he says, it's impossible to say how much leverage Cooper would continue to have with moderate Democrats whose constituents may back center-right proposals. He'll need all he can get because the House... You know, Speaker Tim Moore, he just needs to pick off three Democrats and the Senate leader, Phil Berger, just needs to pick off two Democratic senators to override a governor's veto of something. So it's doable, just like we're seeing with the legislation on the school reopenings, right? Because Cooper, if he's not running for another office, he doesn't have a lot of power to wield over petrified Democrats, <laughs> because that I mean really he because he doesn't have I mean what can he do he can make their lives miserable for the next you know three years <clears throat> okay but if he's not running for anything else if this is the end of the line for him and he's not running for the U.S. Senate seat he says so what can he provide for them like what's the what's the quid pro quo what can he use over them to gain their loyalty and keep them uh with him right because If they're getting pressure from their constituents to open things back up, just standing with their governor is not going to, it's not going to cut it, right? It's not going to cut it. Um, Now, if that sounds like your knife when you're out camping and you need to get a better camping knife, then go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus, by the way. Uh, Tons of great gear outdoor, like hunting, fishing equipment and such. Uh, If you are an outdoorsy uh, type of person, spring is coming and you need your gear up to uh, up to the task. Okay, so head on to, over to Old Grouch's Military Surplus, and Tim over there will help you put together your pack. So uh, it, you you should always have an emergency kit, you know, first aid kit, um, and you should have one in your car as well. Uh, but I've got one in my backpack. So when we go hiking, we went hiking a couple months ago, and um, you know, and I brought that with me. And somebody asked me, "What do you what do you bring in this pack? This is just a day hike, Pete." I said, yeah, and if somebody slips and falls off the side of this uh, mountain, <laughs> uh, I'm going to be able to patch them up. I mean, I may not know what I'm doing, but I can give the supplies to somebody else who does. No, I'm kidding. They've got instructions on the on the kit contain uh, the um, elements of the kit. So uh, even I would be able to help save somebody's life. I feel like I feel like today's theme is saving lives. We're saving a lot of lives here. I feel like okay, old Grouch's military surplus. Tons of real U.S. military surplus. Downtown Clyde on Main Street. The shop is open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. And, of course, as always, tell them Pete sent you. For my sake, people. (laughs) Nobody ever... You'd be surprised how few people get that joke. For my sake. but And also, uh, oh, for the love of me. Is it too deep? Is it too... It's not direct enough. It's not obvious of a joke. Okay, Um, I digress. All right, let me get to this voter ID law because I keep putting this off. And before you know it, there's going to be some other lawsuit (laughs) and uh, the whole thing will be upended again. So um, 
So this is an update. It's from actually December. Okay, but a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit unanimously reversed a lower court decision to enjoin North Carolina's voter ID law and constitutional amendment. Okay, so w- what happened was, right, we had this uh, constitutional amendment. Remember, we all voted uh, voted uh, on this ballot measure years ago in our election. It passed, and in 2018, it passes, and... Um, and then the General Assembly writes the law and they start pushing it forward. And then the uh, the lefties sue and a judge blocks it from being implemented. And that's where we've been in this sort of holding pattern, waiting for the Court of Appeals, the you know, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals to take this up. And I have the um, I have the ruling and I've actually read through it's like 30 pages or so. Yeah, 29 pages. And. Well, I guess, okay, fine, 27, because the first two pages are just like the names of everybody involved. But I've read the whole thing, and I've made a bunch of notes, and these are the highlights, okay? So, the case challenges the constitutionality of this 2018 law that required voter ID. And the law was passed after this very court, the Court of Appeals, the Fourth Circuit, had ruled that North Carolina acted with racially discriminatory intent when it tried to enact its 2013 voting law. Remember that? You got to go back, and actually it goes back even further than that. It goes back to 2011, this voter ID issue in North Carolina. Isn't that crazy? It's been a decade. In 2011, this is where it first started, when Republicans took control of the General Assembly, they passed a voter ID law, and then Governor Bev Perdue, she vetoed it. But Republicans could not override the veto. So then, fast forward to 2013, now you got Pat McCrory in the governor's mansion, and the Republicans pass another law. This was called the Omnibus Voting Law, 2013 Omnibus Law. And it included a voter ID requirement. And there were a bunch of other things in that law as well. And the challengers to the 2018 law, which is the one that we just did, and it was done after the constitutional amendment was approved by us, the voters, Uh, the the uh, litigants here, the challengers, the NAACP, that's who it is, the North Carolina uh, state chapter of the NAACP, they along with others, there are a bunch of other people. Um, I can tell you who. Let's see. North Carolina State Conference of NAACP, Chapel Hill, Carborough, NAACP, Greensboro, NAACP. Well, it's just all the different chapters. Okay. So the challengers say that this 2018 law was enacted with the same discriminatory intent as the 2013 law. And so the, the judges say that the outcome of this case hinges on the, the answer to a simple question. How much does the past matter. To the district court, the lower court, the North Carolina General Assembly's recent discriminatory past was effectively dispositive of the NAACP's claims here, the challengers' claims. Okay, so the NAACP is the challengers. And dispositive means determining the outcome of a case or a decision. Okay, so to the lower court judge, the recent past is all he needed to see all he needed to know, and that determines the outcome of this case, of this claim brought by the challengers. But the Supreme Court actually has some guidance on this. The U.S. Supreme Court says that a legislature's past acts do not condemn the acts of a later legislature, which we must presume acts in good faith. This is the key. It's called the Abbott 
case, Abbott versus Perez. And uh, you can't say that just because a legislature did something bad before, therefore they're doing something bad now. There is no original sin that carries over in a legislative body, you know, in perpetuity. Despite what all the folks who are <laughs> trying to uh, uh, claim, you know, systemic racism and all of that, right? The Supreme Court has this standard. So because we find that the district court improperly disregarded this principle, right? They reversed the decision. They threw this out. They said that the judge's decision to uh, uh, in the lower court was wrong. In fact, let me jump to the very last page here because it's kind of... Uh, <laughs> it's kind of nasty what they say here to him, he says, or to the judge. They say, um, we do not reverse the district court because it is uh, because it weighed the evidence differently than we would. Instead, we reverse because the fundamental legal errors that permeate the opinion. <laughs> Yikes. It, I got to think if you're a judge, you don't want <laughs> you don't want that. Uh being hung around you. Uh, now, I will say also, this is the latest chapter in the ongoing saga over voter ID that had the, you know, with uh, uh, that they targeted the uh, that the Republican legislature targeted uh, black voters with surgical precision. Right. All of that. that. That's where this that's where this comes from in the omnibus bill. The General Assembly in 2011, as I mentioned, they passed this first bill. Purdue vetoed it. Then uh, in 2013, they passed it again, and that passed along party lines. Uh, McCrory signed it into law. The Federal Court of Appeals then uh, enjoined five of the voting restrictions. Uh, So they got rid of these. They blocked them. One was the GOP legislature tried to get rid of pre-registration which is when you're not even 18 years old uh, to register before then. Number two, the elimination of out of precinct provisional voting. Republicans tried to get rid of that. And the, the, uh, the Court of Appeals said, no, you can't. The reduction of the time for early voting and the requirement of a photo ID to vote. Reversing the district court, we found that each of these restrictions had been unlawfully enacted with racially discriminatory intent. Those five restrictions, quote, unmistakably reflected the General Assembly's motivation to, quote, entrench itself by targeting voters who, based on race, were unlikely to vote for the majority party and did so with, quote, almost surgical precision using the data on voting practices which is kind of hilarious because it's not really surgical precision. If you know anything about the way African-Americans vote in America, they vote overwhelmingly like 90 plus percent for the Democratic candidates. It's not really surgical precision to know that. It's <laughs> it's pretty obvious, right? So, and this was what Justice Alito in the dissent, uh, this was my take on it as well, which was you, you can't, this was a, a dissent about the gerrymandering and such, which was... Um, he said, you, you're looking at voter ID or, uh, sorry, voter uh, registration data, and you see all these Democrats, but they also happen to be a complete match. Like if you were to have a Venn diagram of all the Democratic voters and all black voters, right? All the black voters are going to be in that Democratic circle. And so you can't automatically just say, well, you got all these Democrats. Oh, and they also happen to be black. And so therefore, this was due to racism. Because that's a really powerful charge to levy against somebody 
when they may just be doing it because of the partisan nature of the the district lines, right? I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but this is the problem when you're trying to, because the Democrats argue this both ways whenever they need to, which is, you know, if you have the if you have a law that's targeting Democrats, then they they, they want to say, oh, well, you're targeting black people. Well, wait a minute. Just because they vote overwhelmingly for Democrats doesn't mean we're targeting them. It means we're targeting Democrats, <laughs> which is literally what the Republicans were arguing. Um, now, there is no arguing. Uh, if you are looking for CBD products, then the uh, the company that you need to patronize is Growers Hemp. They are North Carolina Uh, founded. They are North Carolina farmers. These are family farmers. Uh, And they said, let's control the whole process from seed to shelf. And it gives you, the consumer, uh, the customer, gives you a better quality product and uh, for a lower price. And you're helping save family farms. And that's obviously the benefit for the farmers. So Growers Hemp, Com. That's their website, growershemp.com. Uh, add the natural alternative Growers Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract to your daily routine. I take some drops every night before I go to bed, and I sleep more deeply than I ever have before, uh, ever. I just, I, I've never been able to sleep like I do now since I started taking the drops. Also, if you want to use it as a topical, they've got the bomb. The B-A-L-M, the bomb. It's the bomb, though. And you can buy one, get one free if you use the promo code LOVE all this month. It's the Valentine's Day BOGO discount at growershemp.com. See the website for details. Buy one bomb and get one free. And as always, with all CBD products, got to give you the disclaimer. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. And these products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. (sighs) Nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. And please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Growershemp.com. Promo code love. Buy one, get one. It's about the hemp and not the hype. So after the uh, the Court of Appeals, rather, enjoined the 2013 block, the 2013 omnibus law, the legislature then called for a new voter ID law. And the General Assembly asked the voters to approve a voter ID amendment to the Constitution, which we did. And that really is the a critical distinction that the Court of Appeals points out in its ruling, that the lower, ju- lower court judge just ignored this fact, that we all went to the ballot box and we all got to have our say, and 55% of the voters said, yes, we want voter ID. That is a that is a material change, and that does not reflect racial animus in the legislature. Not to mention the fact that you're ignoring the Supreme Court uh, standard, which is you can't hold a current legislature accountable or responsible for something a prior legislature did. So that's the latest. I've got it all linked up in the Pete page at the Patreon account. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I appreciate it. And uh, please subscribe to the podcast. Go to the Pete Talk with you later and don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>